Fantasy NBA Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Utsi, Kyle Stein, and me, Michael Kimball. We are here today with our good friend David Smoot, composer and uh, professor at Peabody. We are back in 1977, this time with the finals, Portland Trailblazers, Philadelphia 76ers. It's game six that we'll be talking about. But before we get there, I just want to set up the series a little bit. Um, this is 1977 for me, for you two, 43 years ago, seven days ago, uh, when Game 6 aired. And I was 10 years old, and when we were watching the last pod we did, which was the Trailblazers and the Western Conference semis, I realized this was the first NBA Finals I watched on television and remember. So I wanted to get into it um, and, and, and pick a game that mattered in this series. There are actually a bunch of great games in this NBA final. Uh, game one's pretty wonderful. Game two, um, the 76ers absolutely blow out the Trailblazers. And then there's a crazy fight that happens. Game three was one of the saddest games in my NBA watching history. And that's closely followed by the game six we're going to talk about here. So um, first off, I just want to say Dr. J has re-become my favorite player ever. And when I was a kid, he was. I've watched him for hours over the last couple of weeks, um, just remembering how he played, remembering what I knew about him and watching him then. This series, the NBA Finals, game one starts off with a tip. I can't remember who the ball goes to, but then there's a quick pass to Dr. J, and he dunks. That is the opening for the 1977 NBA Finals. And as a child, I looked at that play, and I thought, the 76ers cannot lose. There is no way the 76ers are going to lose this series. The second game, as I mentioned, was a blowout. There was a big fight that looked like the Philadelphia 76ers won as a team. And again, as my 10-year-old self, it seemed like an inevitable conclusion that the 76ers were going to win. Of course, as we all know, Game 3, everything changed. The Trailblazers blew everybody out uh, of the arena, and the series changed during that game. It was and becomes one of the most disappointing uh, sports uh, episodes in my fandom. And so I just wanted to get into that some more because it occurred to me that fandom is, to some extent, while we remember all of these highlights, it is mostly about disappointment. If you have any one team you love, grew up with, whatever it is, they're usually going to lose. And I'm not talking about the bandwagon fans. I'm talking about the people who have a team and love to watch that team and follow that team. Just by the nature of sports, disappointment is inevitable. And I experienced that a lot as a 10-year-old uh, watching this series. And I think it changed how I watched sports some, some uh, in that little time. Any thoughts on disappointment and fandom, beginnings of fandom, any of that for you guys? Um, 
if I first, I, I'm curious about your um, characterization of the fight as being won by Philadelphia, because the only punch that really landed was Daryl Dawkins actually hitting Doug Collins and giving him he needed four stitches on his face. Daryl Dawkins actually got Doug Collins in the eye. probably going to need some stitches, punched by his own man. I see the blood on the towel, no doubt about it, that Domenico has. Sure. And then well, after the game, when, um, when um, the Philadelphia GM, Pat Williams, talks about Daryl Dawkins in the locker room, and he said he was ripping up counters and washstands, he tore a toilet out of the wall, and he said, and I'm quoting the from a Philadelphia Inquirer article at the time, um, the GM saying, I remember Dawkins saying he didn't feel his teammates came to his defense. Right. And so, you know, they certainly felt like they lost that fight. Yeah, I mean, on the court, in a sense, it looked like they win the fight because what happens, there's a rebound. Um, Dawkins and Bob Gross both go up for it. Dawkins gets the rebound uh, in a really physical play. Twists. They both have their hands on the ball. Dawkins twists away to his left and basically throws Bob Gross to the ground with the ball. They get up, they exchange words, and then Dawkins comes in and throws a punch. Uh, Gross sees it coming. You see his head move back. It doesn't look like it hits him. Uh, but in, in the telecast, you don't see it hit Collins, really. But we see the blood and people going to his aid and that sort of stuff. Dawkins comes out of that Grum is basically running away as soon as he throws the punch. Maurice Lucas comes up behind him and either pushes him or punches him in the head. So when I was saying it appeared as if Philly won it on the court, even though that the the the, the fight, so to speak, wasn't something that was won there. That show of aggression from Philly uh, was a response to the beating they were taking at the hands of the Trailblazers, who were getting you know pretty nitpicky about being blown out in game two. So that's what I meant there. <laughs> But I would actually argue that by doing that, you know, first they, they actually caused um, damage to their own team. Um, and Doug Collins, you know, he well, gets... Well, ultimately, I'm saying well, no, on no, the but, court. No, but I mean, I mean, on the court, you know, they actually, he actually hits Doug Collins. And Doug Collins, you know, he's, he, he sprained his ankle that game, too, you know. So there's a reason why he's not really the same for the rest of the series. It might not be the punch, but it might be. And also, you know, like I think... We think that, oh, Daryl Dawkins shows he's got fight, but he has the feeling that no one else stands up for him. And I think that that's where Philadelphia really loses their sense of camaraderie. Whereas like, you know, and I, and I think this is one of those things where we think that winning a fight means standing up and throwing a punch. But you see it a time and again in the NBA where winning the fight means just taking the beating and laughing at the person giving you the beating. So like um, in the game... In game six, as the game's winding down, uh, Lucas gets brutally undercut by Henry Bibby. Um, and he gets absolutely hammered by Jellybean Bryant, and he doesn't react either time. And there's the sense like, yeah, you can beat on me as much as you want, but I'm not going to do anything. And then um, in the Last Dance um, documentary, John Sally talks about when uh, Rodman pushes Pippen into the stands, that and Pippen doesn't react, and John Sally says, "Yeah, when he didn't react, when he didn't go to fight, that's when we knew they had us. That's when we knew that we had lost." But what I'm saying is, you know, and with what's going on with society today, you know, it's like when people are trying to beat on you. I think some, you know, standing the stronger stand can be standing up and saying, you know, "Yeah, you can do what you want, 
I'm going to be here. I'm going to, not going to give up and just be strong in the moment. I think that, you know, that the Portland team just stand, you know, stands there and is with Lucas, is brings them together as a team in a way that Philadelphia falls apart as a team after that fight. Yeah, and I think that is exactly what happens when we learn about that uh, as the games and the series goes on. One of the things we see there uh, is exactly that description. But I think you know this the 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 re the, the re showing of the video and the retelling of the story gets pretty twisted up in in all of it. You know, there's a video out there of Bob Gross who uh, is talking about it in terms of. He, he said, you know, Dawkins never showed up again, which is, if you look at the statistics, absolutely not true. Uh, so there was something else, you know, a lot of people credit the fight and Portland winning the mental end of the fight as the turning point. And to some extent it was, but I think there were other things going on here that were actually the turning point of the game. I think we see adjustments from Ramsey over the course of the series. And I think we see the 76ers infighting being a part of it. Dawkins not feeling supported, all of that. But we're also seeing players like Doug Collins and George McGinnis have kind of bad series after that game too. So but 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 uh, yeah. But sorry, I kind of we kind of drew you on a tangent for a while. So going back to the to the fandom, that's you know it's it's fascinating because and also for me, I grew up a fan of UCLA during the John Wooden era. Like my parents both went to UCLA, so my earliest fandom was actually watching a team that never lost, literally. It must have been nice, right? <laughs> it was. They would do a chant before every game where they would point out things. They'd be like, there's the basketball. There's the rim. There's the winning team. There's the losing team. And they were always right. Do you think that was formative for you growing up watching a team that didn't really lose much? You know, there was the odd loss here and there, but but pretty rare. Yeah, it's interesting because... You know, grew, you know, and I grew up in L.A., um, Showtime Lakers. My neighbor actually just today was saying to me, wait a second, you were in L.A. With the, with, during the Showtime era. You lived in Chicago during the Jordan era. It's like, no wonder why you're a basketball fan. But all those experiences were were fun. But the team I really loved was the 2011 Bulls. You know, that, was, uh, that, that was when they lost to LeBron or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the team that, you know, they tried so hard. They were together as a team. Joaquin Noah just, you know fighting with every ounce of his body, you know, just giving it his all and they couldn't make it over the hump, but just that intense efforts, what I, what I'm drawn to. Yeah. I mean, I think in these conversations about fandom and in basketball at large, it's really interesting to me because basketball is a sport with all these sort of disparate parts. You know, we, we watch the sport in part for the, the show of it, you know, and I think that's a relevant conversation with, uh, the season post the ABA NBA merger where the ABA players are played with more flair. You know, they had a three point line. They had the color for ball. Um, dunking was like, you know, a tradition, a rite of passage, a way to like flex your muscles um, without getting into a fight in the ABA. You know, they played a faster style, all these different things that align them more with the show um, yeah. in comparison to like maybe today where, 
it's almost uh, less popular to appreciate a player just for the show. Like think of someone like Kyrie Irving, who is maybe one of the best showmen in the game, uh, but he's not always as efficient. He can't shoot the three. Uh, as well as some other players. Um, we haven't really seen him win on his own when he's been the best player on the team, and he sort of is always being piled on by the media, and some of that is self-inflicted, but some of that is right. is because, like, we have stats now. We have so much more information <laughs> to tell us yep. uh, what is good, what's working, what's effective. Um, and also there's a, the reality that all this stuff is context-dependent, you know, Um, So I think that's always one of the interesting like dichotomies and like push and pulls of basketball, you know, whether it's like a a player like Dirk Nowitzki or Carmelo Anthony, right? Like Dirk Nowitzki is a a beast, but, you know, his defensive liabilities sometimes uh, caused issues. Um, The team has called him Irk for the first couple of years because they said he had no D. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there were questions about his toughness. But then, you know, he gets a veteran team and they win a championship um, and like all those things disappear. Same thing with Carmelo. You know, he wasn't necessarily at his peak form in the season in New York when they got to what the second round of the playoffs. But again, he had Jason Kidd on his team. He had Tyson Chandler. He had defense and he was allowed to do more of the things that he was good at. Um, Yeah, it's 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 really interesting because, I mean, I think. These two these two teams, I thought, you know, were like I just thought the Blazers were like the the deeper team and that they were like much better. But like I think you guys are on to something with the idea of a lack of camaraderie in the Sixers team. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're talking about Daryl Dawkins. He doesn't really play much in the second half of this game that we're watching. Right. Um has a good game this this game but he shoots 38 percent from the field for the series and he has the third most shot attempts which is in line with like his standing on the team uh as an all-star and i think a second team all defensive player but um still you know like he's shooting 38 percent for the series that's not good you know maybe he should take less less shots um i think of someone like henry bibby uh who doesn't really have a great game he shoots 31 percent for the series um, and then you compare well, that to, so, yeah, I mean, it just seemed like there, there were a lot I of wanted, performances I wanted, and in ways in which they weren't like working together, I guess I would say. Def, definitely. It was a, cla- and, uh, sorry, Kyle, we'll come back, but it was a classic matchup of team play versus individual play to some extent. Yeah. And part of that's so. the coaching. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, um, You've got Jack Ramsey, Dr. Jack Ramsey, who has a doctor from University of Pennsylvania versus Gene Shu from Baltimore, Govan Zone, um, who is, you know, was known as a turnaround artist who, you know, and he gets fired six games into the next season. You know, I'm, I'm particularly sensitive to the, you know, the, these moments where you chalk up a team's loss to internal, um, you know, to, to lack of camaraderie and chemistry and these sorts of things, um, you know, to give like a preview of this, um, Zach Lowe and on the, the recent podcast with Howard Beck, they talked about how they, they thought that the Lakers would have beaten the Pistons if only um, Shaq and Kobe had been on the same page. And I'm not exactly sure that that's the case. I think that there were a lot of assets that the there were a lot of things that the Pistons were doing that were exacerbating problems that were already there in the Lakers. And I right. see the same thing happening here. I mean, counting stats aren't going to tell the whole story. But in the first two games, Bill Walton has two blocks per game, 
and over the course of the next four, he's averaging four and a half blocks. And I think that, you know, McGinnis's big dip in his shooting could be the Blazers defense in particularly Walton could have played a big part in that. And Absolutely. it's really tough to, you know, get on the same page with your with your teammates when you feel like everywhere you turn, you're getting turned away. It's just like, you know, Stretch Armstrong, he's just those, he's, his arms are extended. He's everywhere. He's covering so much space. And even when Dr. J penetrates and get pat, gets past his, his primary defender, oftentimes Walton is there. And without, like, the benefit of modern spacing and three-point shooting, it's just very crowded. Um, yeah, and so I think, definitely. like, I think you're right. I think you're right to give credit to the Blazers. Like, I don't I don't mean to say that the Bla- that the Blazers didn't deserve to win or they didn't earn the victory. But I think it, it's it's a combination of things. You know, I, I think the Sixers had a lot of talent actually on the team. Yeah, uh, clearly. But it just seems like it, it it doesn't work. The the sum of the parts are not uh, greater, you know, than right. yeah. Whereas, whereas yeah. the Blazers, it feels that way. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying too. Where the Blazers, you know, it's like they're running all the all these cuts, you know, the cuts down the middle, and no matter who comes on the floor, Walton knows exactly where they're going to cut. Or even when Walton's on the bench, and they, you know, and they have, um, you know, Corky Calhoun throwing the throwing those passes, (laughs) you know, and they, you know, but they know exactly where they're cutting. They know exactly where to be. Whereas Philadelphia. I mean, Gene Shu, he is a turnaround artist, so he's getting, he's doing player development. He's getting the players better, but he's not working, but it's, cl- it's clear that he's not working on the sets. He's not working on movement. He's not working on getting them, you know, get, getting the players in position. And then absolutely, Walton get, has eight blocks in this game. Yeah. And there's this feeling in this era that, you know, you just, the, the wing player can't overcome a, a center, you know, if they're, you know, it's, it's, if they're anywhere near as good, the center's going to trump the wing player the way that nowadays it's the exact opposite. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder, I wonder like if, um, you know, what if the Sixers had just said Luke Walton score 50 tonight and, and we won't let anyone else score because I think Luke Walton is kind of, he's like the Steve Nash figure where like the best way to deal with Steve Nash was not to try and stop the pick and roll because you're not stopping it. It's going to work every single time or it's going to work enough to, to, give them a potent offense. So what you should do yeah. is try to force Steve Nash to score 40 points a game because he doesn't want to do that, right? That's not in his nature. And much in the same way, not only is not only might it not be in Bill Walton's nature, it's definitely not in the team's DNA uh, for them right. to play like that. So that sort of disruption could lead to greater success. So that was definitely. something that, that I that I came away thinking because as you're saying, David, it's, it's you know, get the ball in the post to, the, to Walton, run the split cuts, hit the guys cutting to the basket. Um, yep. he's, he's the core of, of everything on this yeah. team. And to support what you're saying there, Jalen, uh, Walton not only led the, the playoffs in rebounds and blocks, but he led the playoffs in assists. <laughs> A point and, guard did not. Bill Walton did. And Portland has, I think, nine more, re- nine more rebounds a game and eight more assists a game than Philadelphia. And go and also going with Jalen saying, with what Jalen was saying, um, uh, they, the Portland team cleaned house after the previous season, and they brought in seven new players in order to build around Walton because they said Walton only enjoyed basketball within the team concept. So he wanted people who would play that team basketball with him, and they built that team with that in mind. So let me – I want to reframe the, the, the sort of star team versus the team team. 
do we always assume that the team with stars, whether it's the Lakers, Kobe and Shaq or this Philly team in 77 or the Philly team in 83 or any other number of teams that have had stars, but not necessarily the team concept. Can we always assume that if they did play more like a team, they would be better? Or are there cases where that's simply not true? I don't I don't know if it's always true because like if you if a guy is an isolation player like right. I would I would That's argue that yeah. I would argue that LeBron and Kyrie played together as a team but they didn't really change their games drastically. It was right. it was more like LeBron is a pass first guy and he can pass he can get the people who are not Kyrie uh, going right, he can get J.R. Smith going by hitting him for threes. He can get Richard Jefferson, Channing Frye, Kevin right, Love. He right. can he can help out those players. Kyrie doesn't need uh, LeBron's help, but he also can't be the one to carry the load the same way LeBron can. Sure. So like, what happens is when LeBron needs a rest, he's just hands the keys to Kyrie and Kyrie does Kyrie things. You know, they don't ask <laughs> right. him to do anything <laughs> right. else. They don't ask him to pass first or anything like that. They say, put, put your defender in the blender, go get a bucket. And if they overhelp, then you're smart enough and good enough to make a pass that will lead to a bucket. And like, so I think that relationship worked extremely well. Right. I think, you know, I think of like the heat in in their four years in Miami, they had to establish a hierarchy because like and they, they had to establish a hierarchy and they had to change their shot diet. Right. So like yep. when they got there, both LeBron and D Wade were not great three point shooters. So that meant you couldn't just take like a heat check three pointer. You had to you had to be su- super efficient because you weren't going to get as many shots. That was the sacrifice that you made by everyone come to coming together so the way that they combated that was by lebron shooting like insanely well from uh the mid-range i think (laughs) in 2013 he was like 50 percent from the mid-range that year and then obviously getting to the basket and the free throw line all the time so i think there's always some sort of give and take that needs to happen but i don't necessarily think that you have to ask someone to like be a completely different player right right can i make one can i make one further distinction in there because you know there, I see a difference between um, sort of top-heavy team play, like what you saw in the best of moments with LeBron and Kyrie, like in 2016, where they do have a real like team dynamic. This happens to be how it has to be with the talent, and they're distributing the workload in kind of the most efficient way that they can, given mm-hmm. the talent that they have. And then situations where you have star talent and you have a group of other players and the relationship between them breaks down. And so that you don't actually have the team dynamic, right? So there's a difference between being top loaded and still operating sort of within an efficient team system and being top loaded to the point where, you know, or because of other factors, the team doesn't operate. Well, he yeah. doesn't really have the guy who can operate the team like that, right? Like there's no, there's no guy who isn't top tier or who is top tier that can sort of run the team or that the team's running through. Yeah. And the that's Blazers obviously have that. Is, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. why he's always shooting is because they don't seem to have anyone to facilitate and, you know, get exactly. other people involved. <laughs> yeah. I think Doug Collins is supposed to be that guy for Philadelphia, but he just isn't in this game. Yeah. He's, he's taking it to the basket every time. Like he's shooting it pretty quickly. And I think, I well, think yeah, sometimes is, he's taking heat jumpers from 24 feet, even, you know, even though he goes three for nine on the game. 
Yeah, and I think I think it's really interesting because, as you said, like the power of the big man is like very clear in this game. Because I, I was struck with Doctor J, right? So I haven't watched very much Doctor J, and what I was struck with was his passing ability. He's a really good passer. He makes yeah. some nice passes in this game, and in his best ABA seasons, he averaged five assists a game, which is something yeah. I just wouldn't have expected. Um, but he's he, he's kind he of he averaged big. five assists for the series. He's kind of a big. He's like a power forward, essentially. Like, he's pretty reluctant to take jumpers for the most part. He wants to drive to the basket every yeah. time. He's he's kind of operating as, like, LeBron in a small ball system at the four. He's making yeah. these, like, passes over the top of the defense with his huge hands. And, and as you said, Kyle, that's kind of why McGinnis is shooting because – Dr. J is the one passing him the ball. Um, and because Dr. J isn't the point guard, he can't bring the ball up. So when he does want to score, it happens in transition. It happens, you know, he's trying to post up on the block or get it around the elbow. But someone has to be the one to get him the ball. And it's a much and it's a you know, once he does receive it, it's almost always going to end with him shooting rather than like them running uh, some split cut sets out of that right. action. So, yeah, right. it's it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, even in this game, we see it in the very first play. Uh, Henry Bibby, Mike Bibby's dad, uh, does not bring the ball up. Caldwell Jones does. <laughs> and the reason, uh, I should mention, is they were trying to pull Walton out. Walton never came out. <laughs> they would just let Caldwell Jones stand there, and Walton never came out and, and took the bait on on that uh, attempted little change that she made yeah um, i don't i don't know if it would have worked but i mean i think oh, i don't think the, it would have <laughs> i think part of the problem is that like lionel hollins um johnny davis and Twardzik just ran the team way more efficiently for the blazers than any of the guards did in this game for the philadelphia 76ers absolutely but but also i feel like in today's if this was, game was being played today obviously there would be a number of things that would be different but the uh, I forget the coach for the 76ers, but he definitely would have tried it. He definitely would have tried to go small anytime Walton was out of the game. And he might have even tried it with Walton in the game, because, as I said, with Dr. J essentially being a four, you don't you don't need two bigs on the floor. Uh, and McGinnis is like well, a power forward, small forward. But again, everyone's in the same locale on the court. Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's less about positions and more about like where they are on the court. Everyone is sort of right around the basket below the free throw line and there's just no space to operate because of that. Yeah. Well, you see the 76ers make mistakes throughout this game because of spacing, poor placement, all of that. One of them happens early on and maybe this was even the first play of this game after Caldwell Jones brings it up. I think it swings to the right side on the wing. The ball, there's a pass, it gets fumbled. It goes back, and I think Collins boots it out of bounds and just sort of shrugs, shrugs his shoulders. And then, and seeing that play, I was like, "Oh, this is over!" <laughs> like it was, you know, you could see the disagreement happening between those three players that were on the wing right there. They they knew they weren't working together. Well, and then um, they're down nine in the fourth quarter, and World Be Free, who we definitely need to talk more about. Yes. <laughs> Takes, yes. holds the ball for the entire possession. He doesn't even look for Dr. J, and he goes 0 for 6 on the game. I mean, 9 for 12 from the free throw line, you know, and he does get fouled on the play. But, you know, it's just like, 
you know, I found myself screaming at, you know, at the computer, pass the ball, you know. I, I mean, yeah. that's what I was doing at the very end of the game. There are, let me see if I have this right, there are 16 seconds left at the end of the game. The Sixers are down two. It's 109-107, the score the game ends with. 16 seconds left. Dr. J gets a shot and misses it. World be free gets the next shot, misses that. They get a timeout. They come out of the timeout, and the play goes to McGinnis. And because if you've got McGinnis and Irving I've on your team, you've got to give McGinnis the shot. I mean, it's it's a law of basketball. Uh, yeah, it was and the I, worst. It was just the dumbest thing I've seen. Yeah, and I think something that's interesting is that we're, we've, we've sort of ended up talking more about the Sixers, and I think the reason why that is is because there's more obvious holes in their attack and in the way that they're operating. (laughs) Whereas the Blazers, they kind of have things figured out to a much greater degree. You know, Hollins has a good game. Walton obviously has a good game. Bob Gross has a great game. He's 12 of 16 from the field, 24 points. And I feel like he's the one who benefits the most from Walton's like hub status as like on the elbow, making these passes, you know, he's just catching and shooting and back cutting and all this sort of stuff. And, yeah, I mean, it just it just seems like their attack, uh, both offensively and defensively, was much more organized. Um, I think Lionel Hollins, again, is a really good defender um, and yeah. probably has a lot to do with World Be Free and Henry Bibby, Henry Bibby struggling throughout yes, this absolutely. series and definitely this game. So, yeah, I mean, I just think the, the parts are so complementary. Uh, yeah. You know, towards it can come in and run the team. Uh, well, Johnny Davis can come in and run the team. It's fascinating because Twardzik, and I didn't realize this when we watched the semifinal game, Twardzik was was the starter. In the finals, we have Johnny Davis starting at the two. Mm-hmm. Twardzik was the starter all year. He got hurt. Davis came in and replaced him and never gave up his starting spot. Yeah. Twardzik went from 30 minutes a game down to 15 or something. Yeah. And with World the end. But was and, good. And, and, and and really good player coming off the bench yeah absolutely and, and while Lionel Hollins's defense is good I mean part of World Be Free's problems is he is playing with broken ribs and he'd had a collapsed lung um a couple about a week earlier so yeah. you know there there are reasons you know it's not yeah. it's the defense but it's also some serious health issues yeah so absolutely and so uh we're, we're we've been saying World Be Free you do not hear it or maybe you do I'm not sure if you hear it in this broadcast, David, do you remember? Yeah, Brent Musburger. It 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 very much frustrated me because Brent Musburger calls every player by their first name like once or twice, but then consistently refers to them by their last name. But with World Be Free, he keeps calling him Lloyd Free the entire game, constantly. And I know World he doesn't change it officially change his name until '81, but he was still known as World Be at that point, and so it felt kind of. Um, you know, like that, the, the way that, you know, the NBA has always been afraid of being seeming too black, that they were afraid of, you know, having the player named World B, you know, and, ooh, we've got to, you know, got to tone it down for the broadcast. So kind of pointing out, no, his real name is Lloyd, but that's not his real name. Was it, uh, was it George Foreman that refused to call Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali? He called him Cassius Clay. I forget who it was, but that didn't work out for whoever that was. <laughs> yeah. You know, just call people what they want to be called. It's not that hard. 
one of the things to know here is his full nickname was All World. That was shortened to World, and almost everybody called him World and had for maybe a decade at this point. This is 77. In 81, he actually legally changes his name to World Be Free, and there's an incident in the one of the their first away game of the season. I can't remember where it was now, but the Philly handlers go to the announcers and say, look, he legally changed his name. It is now World Be Free. And the announcer's like, nope, not going to say it, not going to say it. They go through the player introductions. The announcer calls out Lloyd Be Free. He doesn't get up. The announcer calls out Lloyd Be Free. He doesn't get up. And finally, somebody scrambles over to the, the table and he calls out World Be Free. He gets up and he does the introductions. Mm. So, um, you, you know, in the argument, he was legally that there. There was, at that point, you know, absolutely no reason to not be using it. So it definitely felt pointed when we hear people saying Lloyd over and over um, when nobody refers to him that way then and then later legally so. Um, there was another pretty good nickname in this game. I, you guys know I like to call out the nicknames. Besides Caldwell Jones being Pops and George McGinnis being McGinnis the Magnificent, we have Joe Jelly Bean Bryant here, mm -hmm. Kobe's dad, who is terrible. Just so, terrible in this game. Did, in the did, first quarter. Did you guys catch um, him? In the first quarter, they pan to the bench, and Musburger calls him um, the lead cheerleader. Um, so he only averaged 7.4 minutes a game in the playoffs, but it was Steve Mix being hurt is why he gets so much so much run in this game. Yeah, Steve Mix, I mean, you can see how thin Philly is and, and some of the problematic nature of their team makeup. They're bringing in Steve Mix on a leg that's had two painkiller shots in the last day to get him out here. He looks okay for about two minutes, and he looks pretty bad. I didn't think we would see him again, but Shu brings him back in later in the game, too. Just shows how thin and weak they were, because Bryant got a few minutes, and honestly, should he have gotten any? He was bad out there. But who else were they going to play? I mean, like Don you know. Levy's dad. They played him a minute. <laughs> or also, Mike Don Levy. Well, Daryl Dawkins. Daryl Dawkins is the other piece we're missing here. Um, yeah, I though, wanted to ask. I mean, I think uh, David and Michael, you've watched most of, if not this entire series. Did you feel like Dawkins should have played more in this series or in this game specifically? In this game specifically, I would have put him back in. He played, um, you know, after the game two thing where, uh, you know, he, he lose, lost the battle of, of the, the mental game of the fight there. He has two big games where he plays quite a few minutes, 28 minutes and 27. Um, in the game three, he just has six, nine and one. In game four, he has 15, 11 and one. And then he goes back to just a few minutes. He got a lot of minutes in those games because Caldwell Jones had foul trouble. But I think in this game, Caldwell Jones again has foul trouble. And I think Shu is to some extent trying to play small because he doesn't see Dawkins as an option there. But as the question sort of suggests, I don't think he had any other options. I think he had to play Dawkins more. Yeah. That was one of the few shots there. But Dawkins played 11 minutes and got one rebound. You know, I mean, he he just well, he wasn't doing anything. I mean, Joe Joe Jellybean Bryant wasn't only not wasn't only not doing anything. He was actively bad out there. 
like he was turning the ball over bad. Like you, you just, it would have been a, a, a place where you didn't pass him the ball. LeBron would not pass him the ball. Michael would not pass him the ball. Yeah, we should talk about um, the dunk contest at uh, ha- that they had at halftime, which yeah. was not uh, the glamorous. Before dunk we contest. do that, I just want to throw in on the topic of nicknames. It turns out Twardzik's nickname, according to Basketball Reference, was Pinball. <laughs> that fits. That fits. <laughs> Is that because he's bouncing around on his own or getting knocked around in the lane? It seems like it was both, but you know, it just, it just thought on basketball reference. I have no idea, right. you know, ex, you know, but it just seems so apt, like just the perfect nickname for that guy. You and said, so, uh, you said, uh, Matthew Della Vadova was his comp. Well, Della Vadova's <laughs> nickname should be Sweep the Leg because that's what he's always doing. There you go, diving you into go. people's legs. Karate Kid reference. Um, Okay, so we so, need, uh, as our loyal listeners know, we we cover the podcast uh, on on the podcast, the dunk, uh, history of the dunk, and some dunk contests history. Uh, I was surprised to find this game at halftime of Game Six of the NBA Finals, the dunk contest. Why it was there, why the contestants ended up being Larry McNeil and Darnell Hillman. Uh, turns out. It's the CBS dunk contest. They brought it back as part of their viewing package. There were actually 22 contestants in this game. It was a season-long event, and it happened during the game of the week at halftime every week. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in it. David Thompson was. Moses Malone, uh, Iceman was, and Elvin Hayes, too. None of those guys made it. Yeah, Hillman knocked out both Dr. J and Iceman in earlier rounds. All right. Nice. So, um, yeah, so that's how we end up with two contestants, Larry McNeil and Darnell Hillman, both of whom I had to look up, having never heard of either of them. What do you guys think of this dunk contest? So I know one of the first things people are going to say is that it was the dunks were just not very good. And I want to preempt that by saying that the format where you got points for each of the dunks and you only got one chance for them had me on pins and needles the whole time. It was it was incredibly <laughs> really? anxiety inducing. Yeah, you I thought I was actually, anybody like, was going to miss a dunk. Part of me wanted well, if they I mean so if you watch any recent dunk contest, you know that they miss them all the time. In fact, sometimes they'll try three times on the same dunk. And so sure. <laughs> you, you, you realize pretty quickly that what was happening was that they were doing only dunks that um, they knew that they could make. But you Absolutely. always thought that it was possible that they were going to get a little ahead of themselves or they were going to try really to you know wow everyone. And it could either turn out to be very wowing or it could be – the end of of their run in the dunk contest it was it was almost an element i wanted to see more of because it really put something at stake that made every moment of the dunk contest matter okay kind of fumbles the ball on a dribble at one point and yeah my heart leaps yeah, there were there were a couple moments for both of them uh, where it looked like they the timing might be off and they might miss the dunk. But yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit on the dunk uh, contest right. pod. It's just it was a completely different format. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they're using the original format that they used in the 76 ABA dunk contest or they have. I, I think that's right. You have get to make two five dunks. A, yeah, you in, get two in, points for a made dunk, five from the different spots. Yeah. Uh, and the judges. 
the judges, style which points from the three judges was what they were called. Sam Jones, a referee and a Denver sports columnist. And the, yeah. crowd and the Denver sports booed. columnist gave both the crowd players 8.5. Yeah, that's and what I was I was like, what? Booze at the introductions. They Two booed the judges both are, the referees right. yes. <laughs> and the sports columnist yeah. when they're being introduced. Oh, I loved it so yeah, much. Yeah, that was my favorite part, the, them booing the referee um, and the sports columnist. <laughs> but that's a sad, sad dunk contest if our favorite part is the booing of the ref or the judges, which I have to admit, I also liked. Um, well, there also was the little boy in the thing about that Denver series? Probably. Uh, which which it just happened. Had to be. Had to be, yeah. But there also was the little boy in the Hawaiian shirt holding up the hang loose sign while the judges were holding up their scores. That was also pretty, pretty great. Right, right. I liked that shirt a lot. And speaking yeah. of clothes, anybody catch Jack Ramsey's patchwork pants? Oh I yeah, but, but I think of clothes. What was Darnell Hillman wearing? Oh he was have, in okay, like, you uniform. Know, you I have know. the story on this. <laughs> so, so at so. the time of the finals, Hillman <laughs> had been traded to the Nets, but he hadn't signed a contract with them, so he didn't officially represent any team. Mm -hmm. But he played softball in Indianapolis, and the sponsor. And so that bottle shop with two P's and an E shirt he wears during the warmups in the interview. That's his softball team jersey. He plays left field on that softball team, and that's a local Indianapolis liquor store that still exists. They sponsored the softball team. So officially, that was the only team he belonged to at the time because he'd been traded, but he hadn't signed a contract with the new team yet. Oh, right. my goodness. And to goodness. give you a sense of this shirt for the people who have not seen it, when 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 he appeared in that T-shirt, I stopped the recording, and I went and Googled the T-shirt to see if I could find it and buy it. So <laughs> – it's it's a ring tee. It's got uh, yellow and purple sleeve or stripes on the sleeves, if I'm remembering right. And then it has bottle shop and shop is S H O P P E. The doubling of the T's and the P's, the O's, the E's on the end. It's really a beautifully designed, simple T-shirt for a softball team T-shirt. I think the bottle shop, which still exists in Indianapolis, because I did find them, but they do not have memorabilia, should be putting that shirt back out. Well, especially they should have done it in 2017 when Hillman actually got his trophy. Right. Do you want to tell that story? 40 so years the, later, he gets his trophy. So at the time, he won a $15,000 check, you know, which is great, but no trophy. So um, Glenn Robinson III, who was with the Pacers at the time, won the, two, won the 2017 dunk competition. So they went to honor him, and it being the 20th, the 40th anniversary of Hillman's win, they had Hillman come to honor Glenn Robinson III, and they surprised him by giving him a trophy then too. And he cried, and he thought, you know, he was beautiful, and you know, it's just really touching, actually. Nice, that's nice. Um, also, since we're still, uh, I can't forget the nickname stuff. Darnell Hillman's nickname was Dr. Dunk. I thought he should have won this dunk contest easily. The scoring was a bit weird, as we noted. He only won it 37 to 35.5 over Larry McNeil, even though he was, I'm going to say, two standard deviations, qualitatively more beautiful of a dunker than Larry McNeil ever was. His dunks were beautiful. Yeah, so I was I was pretty unimpressed with Larry McNeil, but um, Darnell Hillman I thought really brought it and was was kind of fun to watch, even though it wasn't a particularly competitive dunk contest. 
Um, uh, did, did you want to talk about a little bit, like, uh, David, I know this is something you were interested in, the uh, the merger and the dispersal draft and, like, all the machinations of that. Uh, do you want to start, David? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'll start with just the, the like, the weird confluences between the teams. So Portland got Walton with the number one pick in the 74 draft. They won a coin flip to get to get that number one pick. The coin flip was with Philadelphia. So Philadelphia had the number two pick where they selected Marvin Bad News Barnes, who's most famous for while playing for the Spirits of St. Louis in the NBA, in the ABA. Uh, he refused to board a flight because they were going from Louisville back home to St. Louis and changing time zones. And with such a short flight, the flight was going to arrive before it departed. And he and this is a quote. I ain't getting in no damn time machine. So we rented, <laughs> so we rented a car instead. So that's who Philadelphia got instead of uh, Bill Walton. Meanwhile, the year before, Philadelphia won a coin flip over um, Portland, although Portland had already uh, traded away their draft pick, and that's how they got Doug Collins. So there's all that. And then with the dispersal draft, they get um, Maurice Lucas with the second pick in the dispersal draft um, after artist Gilmore went first. And I think part of the synergy with the team was the relationship between Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas. They're both vegetarians. Um, and, we, you know, and um, uh, you know, um, they talk about uh, Maurice Lucas has the quote, Bill's a gorilla until the fight starts. Then he goes into hiding while I straighten things out. <laughs> uh, you know, there's that sense well, that they really have that synergy. And that may be why Walton uh, at one late, this was recently, um, just a few years ago in an interview, Bill Walton called Maurice Lucas the greatest blazer of all time. And it may be why Bill Walton's son is named Luke Walton, which he he names, uh, he claims to have named after Maurice Lucas. So that's he how called he him Luke. Luke that was that was yeah. actually what Bill called him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you can see in this game, uh, Maurice Lucas and McGivens uh, uh, are getting into it quite a bit. Like this game is actually pretty physical, not in a way yeah. that there's like a fight, but like there's a lot of like two hands on the waist when people are driving and backing down in the post and like just random pushes that are don't that don't get called. That's another right. thing. The, the officiating this game was really bad. Just it was <laughs> it was not good at all. I think Doug Collins got fouled on like most of his drives and, right. and didn't get a single call. Um, there well, was a, a jump shot that Dr. J took that someone ran into his legs. And I'm just like, I guess this was okay based on the rules back then, but this seems really the, bad. The legs wouldn't be called as much. I was caught by all of the, uh, the pushing that wasn't called. Does, does yeah. anyone have an explanation for that? The, the second play of the game, Lucas um, uh, shoves McGinnis into a ref. He bumps them and sent they both go into the stands and nothing's called it's amazing uh david i want to go back you you, you mentioned uh walton and lucas were both vegetarians did, did, was that just um did that create an explicit connection between them or yeah I mean, yeah they, there... they they talked they talked about it um at the time you know and it's actually mentioned musburger mentions it on the call in this game so i did you know i kind of did a deep dive being being a vegetarian myself i kind of looked into vegetarian athletes and almost all the really famous vegetarian athletes happen to be nba players you know with a few exceptions really? like venus williams and carl lewis but there's a lot of vegans in the nba these days um yeah and they definitely bonded over that any any thoughts on an explanation for that 
why mostly basketball and not some other sports? I could see it working in quite a few sports. Any sport, ultimately, obviously. The basketball players will be more willing to do their own thing. That's just my guess. Right. There is something, too, uh, in the dispersal draft. Uh, Moses Malone's official, like, draft team from the dispersal draft is listed as the Portland Trailblazers. I don't know. I couldn't really find the backstory on that, but obviously he winds up on the Rockets. But Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was selected – uh, so, so first, um, the the Blazers traded two of their players for the second pick in the dispersal draft so they could get Lucas. And then when they got Moses Malone, they they said, well, Lucas and Moses both play the same position. So they traded him to the Buffalo Braves for first round picks in the '77 and '78 drafts. They should have just kept him. <laughs> oh, come on, right? Lucas, so good. Um, yeah, but and and uh, Jalen, you were going to talk Dr. about Julius J- Irving. Yeah, let's talk about how there. he got there to the Sixers. Yeah, so I mean, I was I was just doing some reading on the ABA NBA merger, and there was all these lawsuits uh, to stop it, and all this all these um, not underhanded, but sort of backroom machinations to get the deals done. For example, uh, the Kentucky Colonels were one of the teams that their players ended up in the dispersal draft, even though they were one of the more stable teams from the ABA. But the Chicago Bulls didn't want them to come in because they wanted Artis Gilmore. So they basically shoehorned in the Indiana Pacers as the team instead of the Kentucky Colonels so that they could get Artis Gilmore from the Kentucky Colonels. So there are all these sorts of things uh, like that happening. And like essentially the Kentucky Colonels uh, owner, I forget his name, sold all of his players, um, you know, Artis Gilmore, Maurice Lucas, Bird Averett, Will Jones, uh, Jan Van Breda and Louis Dampier in various things, you know, 1.1 1.1 million was the price for like the rights to artist Gilmore or whatever. And he, he parlayed that into ownership of the Buffalo Braves and then uh, into part, I don't know if it was part of full ownership, but of the Boston Celtics. So like, yeah, there was just all yeah. this stuff that was happening and it was wild. And in the case of Julius Irving, the, again, there were all these rules that the NBA instituted to hamstring the ABA team. So, Uh, When the ABA and NBA did their merger, the four ABA teams who were in the merger, which were the Nuggets, the Pacers, the Nets and the San Antonio Spurs, um, they had to pay a three point two million expansion fee um, uh, to the NBA teams. Uh, But on top of that, the Nets had to pay an additional four point eight million indemnity directly to their in-town rival, the New York Knicks, for invading uh, their market, for invading their area. And they just basically couldn't pay it. So they offered uh, Julius Irving to the Knicks in t- to get them to waive the fee, the $4.8 million indemnity. The Knicks declined the offer, so they ended up uh, sending him to Philadelphia for $3 million. So they, they sold him t- to Philadelphia for $3 million, and then Julius Irving signed a $3 million contract, I think. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. Well, McGinnis also had, had issues with that because he was on Indiana. You know, he was MVP, you know, play, playoffs MVP. And Philadelphia drafted him in 73, despite the fact he was already in the ABA. Mm-hmm. He signed with the Knicks in 75. And the very first thing Larry O'Brien did as commissioner, and he was a new commissioner in, 70, um, in 75, was dissolve that contract, order the Knicks to forfeit first round pick in the 76 NBA draft, and had the Knicks reimburse the 76ers for expenses. So then McGinnis would have to sign with the Sixers. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and another thing, we watched the the game last time between Denver and the Blazers, and we're, Dan Issel was like a great player. I think he's in the Hall of Fame. And how he ended up on Denver was he was on the Kentucky Colonels, um, and the the John Y. Brown, the owner of the Kentucky Colonels, he knew that like he he knew he wasn't going to be able to get into the merger because the Chicago Bulls didn't want him. So he started selling off his players, and he sold. Uh, Itzel or was planning to for 500,000 to the Baltimore Claws. Uh, so relevant to us in Baltimore. <laughs> we but almost the team, had him. Yeah, but the team folded and the money never showed it, showed up. So then he moved him to, to the Nuggets and that's how he ended up on the Nuggets. Wow. I wish the so, Baltimore Claws still existed. Yeah. What a great name. One of the other results of the merger, the drafts, all of these players moving is this Portland team that we're seeing in the finals here. They had seven new players to start this season. It's kind of amazing that they do work that well as a team together, given all those new players. But I think it comes to some extent to the system they were running to having Walton uh, in the high post there and everything running through him. It made it all work. Yeah, And it was very specific to get the players to build the team around Walton. Right. Right. And yeah, I was just I was sorry. I was just going to say, like, in doing the research for this pod, I feel like what I came away thinking was that actually what we all we all love the NBA. But what we really love is the ABA. um, And that the, (laughs) the, the NBA is actually the current NBA. The modern NBA is actually just the ABA. Um, like the, <laughs> Moses Malone was the first player to go prep to pro. Uh, the ABA drafted him right out of high school. Um, like just everything that we associate with the NBA, um, or most of it really has its origins in the ABA from the faster pace, the three point line, the dunks, the yeah. selling of the stars, um, a lot of the fun the, stuff. And, yeah. you know, going back to my childhood fandom to sort of try and, understand how I got to the place where Dr. J was my favorite player and the Philadelphia 76ers were my favorite team. I realized that I loved Dr. J when he was in the ABA. I never, I don't think I ever saw those games. I read about them. I followed them in the paper and other places that you could back then, but that was my only access. And I still loved that better than, than the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I mean, because we love stories and, you know, the ABA was all these beautiful, these amazing stories and the NBA was kind of boring at the time. Yeah, I totally agree, Jalen. Yeah. And I, I looked up this is a Washington Post article by, uh, I think, Tim Bontemps. And uh, the first in the first NBA All-Star game after the merger, 10 of the 24 players were former ABA players um, of the 84 wow. players in the ABA at the time of the merger. 63 played in the NBA in the first season after the merger. Uh, and then there were three players who ended up as Hall of Famers from the ABA merger, Artis Gilmore, Moses Malone and Louis Dampier. And that doesn't include like Dr. J, obviously, because he's like oh, it must be from in a, the in a trade. Draft. Yeah, just a dispersal draft. So. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it's yeah. just there There was so much talent. And I think uh, George Gervin and um, right. Gervin and World Be Free, I think, were like some of the top scorers later, a few years later in the NBA. David Thompson. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's perfect. That's a really great observation. I hadn't really put it together. But, yeah, what we do love now is the is the NBA, which is really we should be calling the ABA because it is that which brought it to life in this way. Um, Yeah. So one of the things that happens in this broadcast uh, that I want to call out is they repeatedly interrupt 
basketball stuff to tell us that they're going to go to the Kemper Open immediately after the game. Over the course of watching this game six, I came to hate golf more than I ever have in my life just for them doing that little reference there. Uh, and and one of the evident, one of the pieces of this is we don't see the celebration much at the end besides the fans rushing the court and all that. They do cut away and go to the Kemper Open. Uh, but I want to call this out. Kyle, I know you have some observations about the, the, the way um, this game is shot for TV and some other aspects of that. Yeah, you know, this is, you know, this is a long running interest that I've had about television aesthetics at this time. And the the first point to me was just the we have such close framings and it says a lot about the style of play at this time um we almost never see the bottom sideline um as we're we're looking at the court and um all the players are really kind of bunched together in in it's it's kind of miraculous to me to think about it like we have you know the old 4-3 dimension television almost a square and all the players are are fitting in it almost from top to bottom and uh (laughs) and they're all just kind of bunched in there and just you know to like put that in perspective the way we watch now we watch in you know hd 16 9 television and you have people filling up that entire frame um and uh you know, I don't. As I'm saying it, I almost have this like media conspiracy that the dimensions of the television have contributed to the style of play. But, um, <laughs> but you know, basically, if it, if it weren't, it, it's clearly Mind not blown. the case. But, yeah. um, but you know, but the today there would definitely be a player down there in the bottom left-hand corner, right. and the the cameraman you know, the camera operator would have to, um, capture that in some way. And, um, and I mean, just, it it says how much we're, we're just really packed in there. Um, I also, you know, any any single play, go ahead, David. Yeah. I'm just like, are you sure you're not right about that? No, I think you are right. Because the same thing happened with football. (laughs) Yeah, I, that's what I was going to say. It's just, it's it's my it might not be the television necessarily, but this increased focus on offensive production and space uh, and space, you know, that that is the same thing that happened in football, you know, spread offenses, mobile quarterbacks and protecting the quarterbacks, you know, like the quarterbacks yeah. make the money, they bring the excitement. So I mean, the I will rules say are literally changed to protect them and I, you know, yeah, I would TV I would products. say I would say exactly that, right? So obviously there's not a direct connection between the frame size of the television and how a game like basketball or football is going to be played. No, no, but but you can imagine that if you're the governing body of the sports league and you have choices over rule changes and the changes that are coming before you um, are some in some way like representable in that format and could be used to you know boost the 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 popularity of the game that you might be more willing to make those you know but, but Kyle, and so I I'm, think that I'm they, willing to I'm willing to posit that you might actually that there might be a causal relationship that coaches might be able to see more of the game you know like you know you can see the players in the in the lower corner you know, on the, along the lower baseline in the corner um, with, the, with, the, with the wider screen television. And so coaches get more of a sense of where all the players are, so they start coaching differently. That could be uh, possible. 
I like that too, right? So then you have like you have a, a number of contributing factors, which is just to say, you know, how you're able to represent to yourself the game is how you understand the game operating. And if you're able to represent it to yourself in an expanded format, then in all likelihood, you're going to be able to conceive new possibilities of, you know, actions within that frame. And that could be, you know, I, I think that that's not just for coaches. I mean, I think that you would also have, you know, league officials, um, the players themselves, understanding that they're being watched from certain areas and like understanding the spectacle of, uh, of you know, shooting from out there and, and any number. You know, there are a lot of ways that you could think about these, like a sort of synergy between the style of play and the way it's represented. Could so, you retell the history of basketball through the retelling of the history of how it's shot? That's what I'm trying to do in this these podcasts, you know? Yeah. Or at least – or I should say yeah, that's, yeah. What that's what I'm thinking of every once no. in a while when I'm watching these games. I'm like, wow, that's really different from the way that we were watching it in 1963 and, you know, different from – in you know, 1998 is so different from 1977. Yeah. And, you know, obviously when we switch to the HD – HDTV that we have now, you know, lots of other changes. And I, you know, I think that yeah. there's, there, there are more than circumstance, more than circumstantial changes that you could probably trace and, um, smook you, you're, you're emboldening me. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, I, I want to read this article, Kyle. When, when, when are you getting started on it? Uh, well, this will always be a reference point that I can go back to and take notes <laughs> for. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about, like, the idea of – obviously not the geometry of the court because the geometry isn't changing, but that right. little white line, the three-point line, and yep. the idea of where you're allowed to stand and made to stand on the court, changing your idea of how to play and also the concept of what is a good shot, uh, you know, yep. with the influx of analytics and how all of those things sort of relate to the way the game is shot. Obviously, like, the game is operated on the perimeter mostly. You know, it's the three-man, it's the Kawhis, the LeBron James of the world, the Paul Georges, whatever, who are some of the best players in the world, the Giannis's. Um, and, you know, what we don't want is them to be mauled on the perimeter and not be able to attack the basket and have these flashes and these bits of flair. So the rules pretty much prevent you from... Uh, bullying perimeter players now where the, the rules do not right. prevent you from bullying uh, uh, interior players in the same way. And I think, you know, that probably has to do with what is more entertaining in the way those parts of the games are shot and how much open space there is around those actions, uh, which make it uh, easier to really see what's happening. I love the idea of some television producers sitting down with all of the NBA coaches and going, Hey, you guys, can you, could you scheme some corner threes and this and this so that we can change how we shoot the game to make it more entertaining for our fans? No, but if we want to go full conspiracy. Well, I, I, but I would think it would go the other way, you know, where. Oh, I do. Too. I, I, I think that's yeah. the way it went. I like the idea. Oh, you like the idea. <laughs> so. yeah. And it's funny to me, like, like this game, they were so pr proud of how cutting edge they were. Like Musburger earlier in the game, he says, from time to time, you'll see flashes on your screen. A lot of photographers are here with flash bolts. Don't be concerned. You know, like we might think, ooh, flashes, they're rioting. It's an NBA game, you know. And then um, when they're going to commercial, they're playing disco versions of like the theme from Rocky in this game. 
and then in other games like Fur Elise and MacArthur Park, you know, so and like at the time, disco was brand new, so like they were cutting edge, just like the Nets today. <laughs> Yeah, let's go back to the golf thing real quick again because I want to. <laughs> okay, so, what, what, no more to, golf. No more golf. Okay. No, no, no. La- last thing just to talk about because. So, Are we going to do a foursome after the game? It's really, I couldn't <laughs> believe how powerful big golf was in 1977 because CBS tried to get the the league to start the game at 10:30 a.m. Portland time so that it could be over and that they could cut to the Kemper open even earlier than right. what, than what they were able to, the NBA balked and, and ended up um, getting a noon start, but I mean, you know, that, would have been, that was still 9 a.m. for the Philly players on their circadian rhythm clocks. No, it would have been the other, right? Because it, it oh, would be later. Oh, right. It would be backwards. three, three yeah, times. I did it their, their time, but but still, you know, it's it's um, it's starting, you know, mid afternoon. Um, you know, right. it's not a prime time showing um for the deciding game of the NBA Finals. Um, and the the video that we watched on YouTube. Um, has a continuous showing of the game, um, which was interesting because, you know, we've watched a number of games here now where we do get cutaways um, to right. other simultaneous sporting events. And from what I was able to read on the um, Paley Center for Media um, website, um, which provides these summaries of, of the, um, the coverage, um, the game cutaway uh, to... Um, either video coverage of the um, of the Kemper Open, or at least they had an audio, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of cut in um, from their reporter um, commentator Jack Whitaker, and we didn't see any of those there. And so I found uh-huh. that really interesting because they they have at least I think it was three of them um, in the middle of the game. You know, besides the like very quick cutaway during the celebration at the end, um, and it makes me kind of curious about like the the provenance of this recording. Like, if it was you know sort of from the CBS studios rather than say being from um, you know like a VHS recording or these sorts of things, um, and uh, or if broadcasts would have been different in different areas. Um, and, you know what what tape the the paley center was working from anyway those 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 were all are we sure we saw the whole game not entirely i mean there's so little score and time put on the screen during these games from the 70s that i don't think we can be completely sure that we did i feel as if most of it's there if not all of it but i'm not entirely certain that's a good point yeah i mean the we could say the the game duration, you know, it's it's an hour and 46 minutes in terms of like total runtime, which is right in line with the other games that we've seen from this time period. But this included um, the halftime show. Oh, but it did. You're right. It yeah. included the halftime show. Yeah, so, the others haven't, right? Yeah. So you might be right. Maybe it did have those golf cutaways, but um, but they have just been excised from the recording that we have. Right. Right. That's that would be my guess here, but. But it's really hard to tell Uh, for our listeners. If you do go back to watch this game, it is not a great recording, but it's still a really fun game to watch. It's pretty grainy. You lose the sound in the fourth quarter. I still didn't care. I was happy watching this game. 
and I know Kyle, um, uh, the, we lose sound toward the end. You found a recording somewhere of the last couple of minutes where the announcers are still making the call. A- any notes from that? Yeah. So I think probably what happened with that cutout of the sound is something in the encoding of that video. I mean, probably the person who created this video had a recording where there was sound, but something happened just in, okay. in you know, in transferring it. Um, the recording that I saw was from an NBA TV broadcast, one of these like, um, you know, classic moments. And it just shows the final two minutes. It's about like eight minutes long. It has these nice um, like historical, um, you know, like like Bill Walton won 128 straight games between grade school and his days in UCLA, those kind of like factoids <laughs> right. and stuff like this. Um, and yeah, it was a, it, it was a different experience watching it there because you lose a little bit of just how intense those final minutes were. I right. mean, you know, the, the Sixers have been down the whole game. Um, they've even been down by five going into, you know, two minutes remaining. I think they might even still be down five with a minute remaining. And uh, and they cut it to two and they get these, you know, they get, they get this possession where they could potentially tie it. And, right. you know, and if they can get it in old fashioned three point play, potentially win it. Um, and they, they miss three consecutive shots um, <laughs> yep. and, and Portland run, walks away with it. And it's intense. Yeah. I mean, like the in, you know, Musburger is sort of like reaching kind of fever pitch and like he kind of this frantic. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, um, commentary. Uh, and I, I did feel like it added to it. It's worth looking for. I, I, I mean, have to say that, that that video that you saw of the last two minutes of the game, that it's an eight minute long video. To me, that right there is the best argument for the Elam ending ever. <laughs> well, we may see the Elam ending again, but I think the NBA has to get through some other issues first. Um, but that end of the game was incredibly intense. Um, this I was doing a little research on World Be Free. And I stumbled on something where he's talking about the end of the game after the game is over. He and Dr. J are um, facing each other somehow. It's not clear. But Dr. J suggests to the team that they should shake hands with the trailblazers. Apparently, World Be Free says in um, some language I'm not going to use here that they shouldn't do that and they don't do that. Any take on that? We've been talking about it in relation to the Pistons not shaking hands with the Bulls, the Celtics, who didn't do it in an earlier season, but lots of people like to exempt them from any um, wrongdoing there because they would have had to pass the opposing team's bench. Uh, From what I've read, there's a long history of teams not shaking the other team's hand after a win like this. It's a bit of a contemporary thing where everybody gets trophies, in my experience. So I don't see this as a big um, affront, especially after a game like this. Uh, Do you guys see it that way or, or no? No, I don't see it as an affront. I mean, I think you can judge these on a case by case basis. I mean, every series is different. The relationship between the teams and, you know, um, the antagonism between the teams. And I still don't fault the Pistons. I mean, I I understand that it's one of the, it's one of the particularly worst 
Um, and I, in retrospect, in certain ways, like when Isaiah is saying, yeah, I wish that I had, I had, you know, shaken their hands. I think, yeah, I think that that's probably right. And, um, but I also like, I kind of get, you know, what they, I get where they were coming from. Those were really testy series with the bulls going yeah. back several years. And, you know, sometimes emotions run high and, you know, I, I just like, I think the difference is that in, in the Detroit instant in the Detroit version, they left while there was still time on the clock and walked right past the bulls. And you see them talking and making a decision to do that. Whereas in this game, it was, it wasn't decided until the buzzer and then the fans all storm the court and it gets dangerous to be out on the court. So you would have to actually make an effort to go to the locker room while they're celebrating in order to do, in order to shake hands. So I think it's, it's just apples and oranges. Yeah. I mean, but if you're making that, you could, you could say the the, the Pistons just made sure to get out of the way before any incident could happen. No, but you see, you see Lane Bear saying. I know, I, I know, I know. I, I, it's, it's one of the, mo- you know, one of the worst moments in in NBA history. I'm, I'm actually the only thing I'm trying to say about it is that, you know, the, these I don't think are moments for shaming people. I think that they're moments for for learning. I think that they're moments for, you know, considering, you know, future action. Um, they're moments for those players to consider their own actions and, you know, potentially regret. But I'm not in the business of, of shaming people for doing that. Oh, but I want to shame Bill Lambert any chance I get. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if we're also talking apples but it's and not oranges, just Bill we're Lambert talking and Zeke, too. But we're also talking about very different points in time from now where everybody would generally agree it's not a good thing to not shake hands. Back then, it was fully accepted to not do that, despite the retelling of the stories today and that everybody did. And, that you know, it just wasn't part of it like this. This is a post narrative, you know, reasoning on this where the Pistons are getting trashed so hard. It wasn't like that at the time. And it wasn't like that years before. I still want to trash Lane Beer. Understood. I think I think a lot of people feel that way about Bill Lambeer, and I don't think that's ever going away. And he's not making it, you know, easy for people to um, let <laughs> no. him off the hook. I mean, like he's he just can't stop nope. running his mouth. <laughs> nope. So. All right, I think um, we've we've covered most everything I have here. Uh, why don't each of you, um, David, last thoughts or any points we didn't get to? I hate Bill Lambeer. Okay, hated Bill Lambeer. No, but but seriously, again, it's always fun to talk basketball with you guys, and uh, I love Kylie. Blew my mind today, so just absolutely a joy. Thank you guys. Yeah, Kyle. Uh, yeah, Smook. Um, you know, we need to have you come on again so we can talk about your championship, whether it's happened already or whether it's impending. I can't I can't figure out when the event of a championship in a pandemic really happens. But you are the champion and we should come on and celebrate that. Um, That's and, all. You know, and I, th- I think, I, you know. I'll just leave it there. I'm going to have some things to say about um, Larry O'Brien, who was um, got a he got um, 
we had a shot of him in the stands in this game, but I think that we'll get a chance to talk about him um, maybe when we do like the 83 um, Sixers win because Michael, I feel like you yeah, deserve I need it. you de- I need you deserve <laughs> this one was a hard one to go through, and I think you know we we should give you a moment in the sun. You led in without knowing to my last thought was that you know, was simply my realization that this was where my fandom started for the NBA in such a strong way, even though it was the NBA, ABA I was really, truly a fan of, but also recognizing the um, what was a massive disappointment for me at the time and how that changed how I, I viewed sports and, and rooted for teams down to the last, last wire, like the 76ers, who almost pulled this out, almost had a tie, almost send it to overtime here there were any number of plays that could have changed this game in the other direction and there would have been a game seven so i would absolutely love loved to come back and do the 83 series at some point jalen last thoughts yeah i mean i'll i'll piggyback off of that talking about disappointments uh we've talked about going over the 2016 finals game seven which is uh, night, a nightmarish experience for me uh, I have to watch Festus Azili uh, let LeBron <laughs> right. score six straight points. Um, and and I guess it'll be interesting because I've been on both sides of that with LeBron from losing to the Spurs in 2014, which was quite, quite tough to take. That was a serious dismantling. Um, and there was like a clip, which I don't think is available online anymore, of uh, Dwayne Wade pointing at, for a switch instead of actually playing defense. Uh, and it was about a three minute clip. So that was all from that series. <laughs> so yeah, was, that, that was That's a rough, rough. one. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think on that note, uh, that is the end of this episode of the shot tower pod. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers. Cheers.